Uh, welcome to another week of our series called Knowing and Encountering God. We're talking about how an encounter with God can change your life. Uh, and and we're, uh, in this series, we're, we're kind of putting that on display by looking at uh, different case studies in Scripture of people who had encounters with God that changed their lives. Last week, we had our first case study. We looked at Jacob, whose story really shows us uh, how an encounter with God can heal you from the pain of a dysfunctional childhood. This week, we are looking at the story of Moses. So I'm going to be in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. This is a passage that I've taught before. We're going to come at it from a different angle today, which is the nice part of you know, any passage in Scripture. You could teach it you know, a thousand different times, and it's living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. You're going to find that there's always a whole lot more to get out of this. So Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, let me read this. It says, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am. He answered, do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about the sufferings. I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I've also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt. He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you'll all worship God at this mountain. And Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. This is God's word. What I'm trying to do first and foremost with every one of these encounters we're looking at in Scripture is begin simply by asking myself the question, okay, what did this encounter with God, what did it do for this particular person at this moment in their life? Basically, the question is, how exactly did their encounter with God change them? When I ask that question of Moses here, the answer is very clear to me. Moses' encounter with God filled his life with purpose. Uh, And so that's what we're going to talk about today. But before I get into that, I just want to try to explain real briefly exactly how important this is. Because as human beings, we need what this passage is showing us God can do for us. We need a sense of purpose, just about as much as we need food, water, and oxygen. That's a bold statement to make, but studies have actually shown, this This really, really struck me the first time that I heard it, but multiple studies have shown, for instance, 
If you take nursing home residents and you give them plants or animals and, and you say it's your responsibility to care for these plants and animals, that that alone has been quantifiably shown over and over again to dramatically extend life expectancy, increase overall health, and decrease the amount of medication that's required. And the reason for that is because we are that purpose-oriented uh, in the core of our being. And so I don't know, you know, where you're coming from today. I don't know, you know, what place uh, you find yourself in life or where God has you today, or, you know, whether you're on the mountain or, or um, in the valley or someplace in between. What I do know is that by God's design, you need, you are hardwired to require a purpose, to feel like you're getting something of significance and value done and so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at how God did that for Moses and, uh, obviously with that, how God can do that for you and I. Um, it's not quite a formula. It's not five things that we can do to get God to fill us with purpose. But what this is, I really do believe this is almost like a recipe for how God imbibes our lives with a sense of purpose. So I just want to kind of spend some time in this passage and pull out four elements from it that all combined uh, in a way that forever altered the trajectory of Moses' life, and I believe can alter yours and mine as well. We're going to look at, number one, the timing of God, the reality of God, the immensity of God, and the provision of God. And with that, we're going to get right to our first idea. That I think this is probably going to be the most encouraging idea today. Number one, uh, let's talk about the timing of God. I just want to start in the first verse here. It says, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So literally in the Hebrew, this says that Moses was watching the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro. Uh, but this, this word uh, watching or shepherding or caring or however your, your version translates it, uh, it's a verb that, that um, it conveys continuance, kind of an ongoing sort of never-ending behavior. So literally you could translate this, that at, at this moment in his life, it, you, you could say Moses was watching and watching and watching and watching and continuing to watch the sheep. Here's the point. Here's the point. Moses' life, uh, you miss this if you just kind of parachute into to, to Exodus chapter 3. But Moses' life, when God, decides, when God decides to interrupt it and change it forever, Moses' life looked to everyone, including Moses himself, like it was already over. If you know anything about Moses' story, you know, he's adopted by one of the daughters of Pharaoh um, and raised in that royal palace. And so what that means is that, that Moses, at one point in his life, uh, a long time before this point in his life, once upon a time, Moses had access to the finest education maybe in the world at the time. Right? One thing that we know even today is that the Egyptians were not dummies. I mean, the, the way that they were able to build um, with such precision, given the, you know, the primitive tools that they had access to. They were brilliant. Moses had access to that kind of high-powered education. Uh, being raised, obviously, in the, in the Pharaoh's house, he had access to incredible connections. And not only that, but he was young. And I don't have to tell you, even today, that's what we call the hat trick. If you have those three elements present in your life, if you have your youth, if you have great connections with powerful people, and you have a high-powered, valuable education, if there is a recipe for a successful, ceiling-shattering life, uh, 
That, that's what it is. That's the recipe. And Moses had all of that. Um, you follow Moses' story, and you know that um, one day when Moses discovered that he was an Israelite and that his people were being oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians, Moses decided he couldn't, you know, his, his convictions would not allow him uh, to just be um, uninvolved. And so one day we're told that he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of his countrymen in a fit of rage. Moses actually murdered that taskmaster. Uh, that obviously blew up in his face, and that caused him to have to flee to where he was here, flee into the desert for 40 years, meaning uh, that was 40 years prior to this story that that happened. So, so here, here's the point. Uh, Moses' entire life went on a detour, and at this point, when, where we're picking up in, in Exodus chapter 3, his life is not on a detour, it's a dead end. At this point, every asset Moses used to have is gone. At this point in his life, he has lost his wealth, he has lost his reputation, he has lost his connections, he has lost his influence, he's lost his confidence. If you keep reading, you see it, you see kind of hints of it in chapter 3, it becomes even more explicit in chapter 3, psychologically, he's lost all of his confidence, and not only that, he's lost his youth. He's an 80-year-old man now, uh, and so to everyone looking you know, at his life, including Moses himself, we can see here, if there ever was a time that God was going to use him, that time is now long gone. Moses is, is, at this point, he's an old man who's failed to live up to his potential, uh, and he's basically running out the clock in a forgotten part of the world. And it's only at that point in his life that God shows up and says, finally, now we can get started. And he tells Moses, I am going to have you oppose the dominant world power of the ancient Near East. Uh, you're going to lead your people, who are really my people, God says, out of this oppressive yoke that's been placed on them for some 400 years. You're going to bring them into the land that I have promised them, which is now occupied, uh, and you're going to advance my plan of salvation in a way that you probably couldn't even grasp if I tried to explain it to you. That's what God says to this 80-year-old man who looks and, and feels like his life is over. So before I move on from, from this, let me just pull two implications that are incredibly important for us, uh, you know, hopping into this story uh, all these years later. Number one, here's what, what just this first verse means for us and really the whole story of Moses. Number one, this means um, you and I are never of any real use to God until we feel absolutely useless in general. Uh, maybe stated a little bit differently, you and I, I, I think it's appropriate to say we really can't be, we can't begin to step in the purpose that God has for us until God brings us to the end of ourselves. Right? Elsewhere, Scripture says you actually, you can't even enter into a relationship with God at all until you come to the end of yourself. That's what repentance is. It's me kind of hitting a, a spiritual rock bottom where I realize I'm not qualified to be the God or the Savior of my own life. I need more than an advisor. I need something more than advice. I need uh, more than God to come in and sort of inhabit a part of my life and improve me. I need Him to save me. Uh, that, that, that kind of humbling, the Scripture says you can't enter into a relationship with God at all until you come to the end of yourself. But what this is saying, kind of e even more than that, what we're seeing is that you have to come to the end of yourself in order to, to truly step into God's plan for your life. And the reason for that, I think, is pretty simple. It's because until God brings us to the point that he brought Moses, you see the same thing in Jacob's life, you're going to see the same thing in every one of the encounters in this series. Until God brings us to that point, it's entirely appropriate to say it's not even safe for him to use us. 
Because until he gets us there, we don't have the humility, we don't have the self-awareness, we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the dependency on God that needs to develop in us in order for God to use us. And so first off, uh, the first principle is until you feel useless, you're actually not very useful at all, at least in God's economy. Secondly, and and I think related to that, um, the second principle we see here is that God's timing is almost never the same as ours. What, what you see in the way that, that God the Father in the Old Testament and Jesus the Son operates in both Old and New Testament is that he, he has this way, I don't think it's just that he happens to, I think it's, it's that he actually desires to uh, confound our sense of timing. And usually what you see when, when, when humans deal with God is that when we are absolutely certain the time is now, God says, you're wrong. And the, conversely, the other side of that is when we are absolutely certain that the time is past and it's too far gone now, God says, guess what, genius, wrong again. And the reason that it's so important to camp out on that is because if, if we insist, and I think we all do, I know I do, I think we all do this, as long as we insist on imposing our idea of time and our scheduling and our calendar on God, we're going to always struggle to feel loved and cared for by God. That's why this is so important. That's why I think story after story in Scripture deliberately portrays God as this, you know, this God of the 11th hour, this God that shows up when, when we're convinced, no, it's, it's too late for that now, and He says, no, it's not. It's really never too late for Him. And so I, before moving on, I, just, I hope this point is as, as, as encouraging to you as it should be, um, and let me just speak to two kinds of people here. I'm sure that there's people listening to this uh, who you feel like you have lost something that you needed. I don't know anybody that doesn't feel like that. Uh, maybe you feel like you lost opportunities. Uh, you, you feel like you lost relationships. You lost people. Uh, maybe you feel like you lost uh, wealth, money. Maybe you feel like um, you, you've lost uh, time, whatever it is. Uh, if you feel like that, let me just take that mindset to the life of Moses here and ask the obvious question. Don't you think that Moses felt like that? Don't you think that Moses felt like, okay, if there was a time God would use me, it's when I had all that stuff that I needed. Don't you think he, don't you think he felt like he needed his wealth and he needed his connections and he needed his reputation and he needed his influence and all the things that came with his upbringing? Of course he felt like that. But what this story is showing you and I is that sometimes, and, and maybe it's more than sometimes, maybe it's most of the time, the way that God likes to interact with us is he, he allows us to lose things that we've told ourselves we need and ruin our plans for our lives so that he can bring us into his plan for our lives. And if there's anything Scripture's clear about, it says his plan, his plan for your and my life, while almost never more comfortable or easier than our plans, they're always better than our plans. Secondly, and right along with that, I, I'm, I'm pretty certain that there's people listening to this right now who you understand this, this, this feeling of being too far gone. Maybe you look around your life right now uh, and, and you feel like maybe it's one area of your life, your marriage is too far gone. Uh, you know, maybe it's your kids. Your, your, your kids are too far gone. Your family's too far gone. There's some situation in your life you're in the middle of right now. You've looked at it from every human angle you can. You don't know what to do. You, you know, you're locked up. It's too far gone. Or maybe just like Moses, you feel like you yourself, y- your time's passed. It's over. It's done with. It's kind of hopeless. You yourself are just too far gone. If that's where you're coming from, I just want to remind you that the story of Moses 
In Exodus chapter 3, at its core, at its essence, at bottom, this is the story of a man who was absolutely sure that he was too far gone, and it's only then that God showed up and said, finally, now we can get to work. So I don't know what that means for you. I don't know how you need to apply that to your life. But the first thing that this story invites you and I to consider is, number one, the timing of God. Secondly, uh, we see here the reality of God. Uh, This is unequivocally, a lot of commentators will say that this this account is actually Moses' conversion. Whether or not, you know, it actually is, I think it is, but but whether or not it is, it certainly is the moment in Moses' life when his life dramatically changed as a result of his uh, relationship with God. There had never been a real dramatic change prior to this moment. And so at this, just consider this, in this pivotal time in Moses' life, uh, God decides to appear as a fire. Right? God could have spoken to Moses through a disembodied voice. He could have um, appeared to him in a dream or sent angels or whatever it is. God communicated that way numerous times to other people in Scripture. But here in Moses' life, when he really begins to pivot Moses' life, he appears as a fire. So let's ask us what that symbolism really means um, and, and what we're meant to see here. I just want you to consider, when you are sitting around a fire, you don't, just believe, you don't just believe in the presence of your fire. Yeah, I, I believe that there's a fire here among us right now. That's not how fire works. The, the thing about fire is when you're, when you're seated in the presence of it, uh, you experience it personally. Whether you want to or not, fire is actually, it, it basically assaults all five of your senses. Not everything is like that. There's a lot of things that you can be in the presence of and you're not so aware of it as you are fire. But with fire, it literally comes at you through every sense. First off, you obviously see its brightness, but you feel its warmth. You can hear that kind of, you know, crackling sound. You can, fire has a smell to it. Uh, And in smelling it, you can almost taste it. The point is when you're in the presence of a fire, it's not just this intellectual thing. It's not just this emotional thing. It's not just this abstract thing. It's a deeply personal experience. What is that supposed to show us? Here, among other things, here's, here's one implication you can draw from this. What this is showing us uh, is that if, if you want your encounter with God to really change your life, if you want your relationship with God to really change your life and fill it with, with purpose, this account is showing you and I that we need to experience God in more than just an intellectual abstract way. Because prior to this moment in his life, that's all Moses ever had. Right? Atheism was basically non-existent in Moses' day, certainly not in the nation of Israel. So prior to this moment in his life, for all 80 years that God had given him, Moses believed in God in a general sense. Didn't do him any good. Moses thought about God. It didn't do him any good. Moses probably, I'm, I'm, not probably, I'm certain that Moses prayed to God. None of that did him any good until he actually experienced God in a personal way. And most people, I think, have the kind of general belief in God that Moses had prior to this moment in their life, and that's all they have. And I'm afraid that a lot of people, you know, they they, they kind of give God a shot, or they give church a shot, or they give the Bible a shot, and they walk away thinking, yeah, I I tried that, but it didn't work for me, when when, when the issue is, no, it's not that you tried it and, and it didn't work for you, it's that you never really experienced it for what it was to begin with. You, you never really experienced what Moses experienced. You've never really experienced, you know, I, I've pulled all of these quotes from people throughout history that all their life they had this intellectual understanding and one day the curtain got rolled back and they could see this for what it was and they were never the same. It, the issue isn't you tried it and it didn't work for you. The issue is you never saw it for what it was because if you did, you wouldn't walk away. And maybe you stopped leaning in just before you were there. When I say that, you know, talking about the reality of God, 
I, I, would, I wish so bad I could give you five techniques to bring the, 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 the fire of God into the presence of your. I wish it worked like that. If it worked like that, I don't know a person alive who wouldn't have already practiced those five techniques and done that. It doesn't work like that in a relationship with God because it doesn't work like that in any other relationship that they have. I'm just putting this out before you to try to get you to ask what might be the most important question you'll ever ask yourself, which is the question this entire series is designed to get you to ask, which is have you ever really personally experienced the presence of God in your life? No one can answer that for you. I don't think it happened for me until I was 19 years old. And I think it's something that we're supposed to experience over and over and over again. We talked about two weeks ago. It's something we should pray for. It's something we should hunger after. It's something we should desire. But, but the, maybe the most important question you'll ever ask yourself, is this just an intellectual thing that you think about from time to time? Is this some abstract idea, a belief system that you, you know, give mental assent to? Is it an emotionally moving experience that kind of gives you a shot of dopamine once a week on a Sunday morning? Or have you actually experienced the fire of God's presence in your inner being in a way that you can say, I couldn't walk away from this if I wanted to now? Moses' life did not change until this moment. And your and my life won't change either until we get here. The reality of God. Thirdly, the third element you can pull out from this, and I don't even know that this is the best word because I don't know how to describe what I'm trying to lay out for you, but what I landed on is number three, the immensity of God. And there, there's two ways that this text gets this idea across. Hopefully you'll understand what I mean as I kind of walk us through it. But I want to look at first off the kind of fire that God appeared as and then the name that he gives Moses through which he identifies himself. So, so first off, verses 2 and 3, uh, you see that God appears as a fire, but it's not just a regular fire. It says, Then the, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? Um, Essentially what happened here is, is Moses is watching these sheep and he sees a bush that's on fire. That in and of itself, you know, not that remarkable. It could have been lightning strike or maybe somebody was there earlier and they didn't put the fire out, whatever. But the, the picture that's being painted here, I guess Moses was looking at this bush for probably something around a half hour and he noticed something that he couldn't wrap his head around. That bush wasn't being consumed. Now what that means is that Moses saw an energy source that day that we have no knowledge of in the physical universe that if we ever found and harnessed would instantly transform the world more than any invention ever has, which is a self-sustaining energy source. Moses knew this. Uh, Moses knew when he saw a fire resting on a bush that wasn't consuming that bush, he knew, wait a minute, this fire does not depend on fuel. Now, he'd never seen anything like that before. We still haven't seen anything like that today because one thing we know about fire is that it requires a fuel source. Take the fuel source away, the fire goes away. But this was, this was a fire that had the, its, its power of being, its energy source within itself. It was perpetually self-sustaining. Now that in and of itself, that's really mysterious. That's really, you know, what is God trying to say? If all he did was appear as a fire and not say anything, we could kind of speculate, maybe pull some implications of that and, and guess. But at the end of this passage, God speaks clearly uh, what he's basically whispering through this self-sustaining fire manifestation. Uh, because at the end of this passage, Moses, you know, kind of thinking ahead to, to what is he's pretty certain is going to be in his immediate future. Moses is, is basically thinking, okay, I'm an 80-year-old shepherd who has 
you know, done what I can to ruin my own life. You want me to teleport back into the, the people that I've run from for the last four decades, and you want me to stand up to the dominant power in the ancient Near East, maybe in the world, and wrench the people of Israel from a 400-year yoke of slavery that's been pressed on them. Moses, thinking ahead, says, you know, sooner or later, somebody's going to ask me, who told you to do that, Moses? And when, when they ask me, Moses asks God, who should I tell them has sent me? In other words, he's asking, what is your name? And then in verse 14, we see this really enigmatic um, famous line from this story, verse 14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're, you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, different versions translate that exchange differently because this is almost impossible to translate. What literally happens here, and you, you can imagine what Moses would have thought about this, but what literally happens here is when Moses asks God, what is your name? How do you identify yourself? Who should I tell people you are? God's answer is simply the Hebrew verb to be. That's all God says. Uh, and, and so this would be a strange way to translate this, but it would probably be the most literal way to translate it. What God is basically saying to Moses is, Moses, when people ask you who sent you, I want you to tell them you have been sent from being itself. So put these two ideas together. When God appears as this self-sustaining fire and he calls himself the verb to be, it's basically, he's not saying two different things. It's just two pieces of a puzzle. One is kind of what he's whispering. The other is what he's saying unapologetically and, and straightforwardly. What, what God is saying to Moses is, you want to know who I am? You want to know who you're dealing with? God says, I am the self-sustaining one. I have no needs. I operate from no deficits. Uh, I have no requirements. Um, I, I depend on nothing, yet everything depends on me. God is saying, there has never been a time in which it could be said God will be. There will never be a time in which it could be said God used to be. God says, I am the perpetually existing one. I am the uncaused cause. I am the I am. Now, that, I don't think I even came close to explaining what God's saying there. I'm just... <laughs> That's all I got for you, church. But let me, let me pivot from here and, and kind of let you into to my mind. Um, I've, obviously, I've been hearing this story, reading this story since, you know, grade school. This week when I was putting this together, I asked a question that I've never asked of this passage before. Uh, the question I was asking is, uh, who did God really give that answer for? What I'm asking is, when God says, God, what's your name? And God says, I am. Uh, I, I, for whatever reason, I was asking myself, well, who did, for whose sake did God give that answer? Who did he give that for? And I, I, I can't prove this. This is just my opinion. All I'm doing is letting you into my mind. But I'm convinced that God did not give that answer to Moses for the sake of Pharaoh. I don't think he gave that answer to Moses for the sake of the Egyptians. I don't even think he gave that answer uh, to Moses for the sake of the nation of Israel. And the reason for that is because, let's face it, it's not a terribly illuminating answer. Run this scenario. This is where my mind went. So I'm trying to think in the days, weeks, months, years ahead, when somebody inevitably pulls Moses aside and says, hey, buddy, uh, just between you and me, you know, all jokes aside, we, you know, I'll keep it here. Who told you to do all this? You know, you're an 80-year-old shepherd 
standing up to the, the dominant superpower of the ancient Near East, trying to lead people out of a slavery that we've really only ever known. I mean, this goes back 400 years, and you think you, at the, basically the twilight of your life, are supposed to lead us to this promised land. By the way, what's a promised land? You know, who, on whose, uh, whose authority are you operating? Just between you and me, Moses, who told you to do this? I can't picture Moses saying, oh, I'm glad you asked. I am, did. And then the person he says that to says, oh, that's super clarifying. Thanks. Let's get to work. The, the, the conclusion that I'm trying to, to, to bring you to here that I've arrived at is that God revealed himself this way for, for, for one person's sake, and that's Moses' sake. Now, he, here's, here's kind of why I think this is important to, to highlight. In this series, we're looking at different people's encounters with God. Uh, and although we've, we're only in the second week of this series, w- one thing that has, I, I've, I've, I've already seen, just by comparing last week's encounter, Jacob, with this week's encounter, Moses, one thing I'm already seeing so clearly that I've never seen before, uh, that, that I'm confident you're going to see in every single week of this series, is that God, in, in Scripture, and in our lives as well, God always shows up in a person's life in exactly the way they need Him to. I don't know why that's never really moved me or hit me as clearly as it has here. But, but for instance, let's just compare and contrast last week and this one. Last week, we looked at the story of Jacob. who He's, he's this manipulative, deceitful man who's, who's constantly on the run. Jacob always has an out. He always has an angle. He always has a plan. And he's always got, you know, an escape route. So he's living his life on the run. So what does God do? God shows up, drags him to the ground, wrestles him, and wounds him so badly that Jacob would never be able to run again. He walks for the rest of his life, life with a limp. That's what we talked about last week. That's exactly what a guy like Jacob needed, and so that's exactly what God did. But here, in Moses' life, this is a completely different ballgame. What you have in this story is, is God is getting ready to place this incredible calling on a man who is incredibly unsure of himself. I mean, you, you, you saw this exchange in chapter 3. You could see it even more explicitly in chapter 4. What is so clear is that Moses is absolutely certain he's not the man for this job. He's just, he knows he's not enough. He says, I'm, you know, I'm not young enough. I'm not a gifted enough leader. People aren't going to believe me. They're not going to follow me. I'm not eloquent enough. I don't have the skill set. I, you know, they're not going to be compelled. I can't cast this vision and all this kind of stuff. He's riddled with insecurities. And so what God is doing here is he's giving Moses exactly what Moses needed, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say is it's the same thing that absolutely anyone who attempts to walk in God's purpose for their life needs. You know what he's giving him? This is, this is what I'm building up to. He's giving Moses a picture of exactly how immense of a God he is. And anyone who attempts to honestly walk in the calling that God has placed on their life, anybody who attempts to step out of themselves and walk into the purpose that God has for their life needs exactly what God is giving Moses here and what Scripture would give all of us, which is, which is this blown up, enlarged picture of how immense God is. And the reason we need this, I spent a whole sermon answering that question, but at, at the very least, the reason we need to see the immensity of God like Moses does here is because that's the only thing that at the same time will save you and I both from arrogance and anxiety. Now, let me, I'll make this personal for me. You can just plug this in for you. On the one hand, the reason that, that this, this picture of the immensity of God saves us from arrogance on the one hand, as, as much as the human heart, heart, heart uh, hates this, is because when I begin to understand what God's revealing about himself here, the very first thing this reminds me of is God doesn't depend on me. 
like, God's not lucky he's got a guy like me around. As though, you know, the omnipotent arms of God are just a little bit too short to reach the earth, so i got to complete his desires for him. As though his plans are cosmically thwarted if I don't decide to... What a stupid thing to think. Uh, it, it also reminds me, I mean, you think about that. When he says, I am, when he says, I, you know, this is being itself, what he's saying to me, what he's saying to you, what he's saying to anybody who would dare follow him is, let's just get one thing straight off the bat here. I don't depend on you for anything. You depend on me for everything. That means anything that I happen to accomplish for God in my lifetime, I'm only accomplishing with gifts and desires and abilities and an intellect and opportunities and you name it that he's given me. There is no way for me to put this God in my debt, period. There's just no way. And furthermore, when I understand exactly how immense this God is, this is a real popular thing to say in the modern West, this reminds me that when I come across a, a command in Scripture for instance, when the Lord Jesus Christ says to me, a person who claims to be his follower, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, when he commands me to love my neighbor as myself, when he commands me to love my enemies, when he commands me to pray for those who persecute me and bless those who curse me and practice radical generosity, and he has all these different commands for these different areas of my life, this picture of God reminds me, when I come across verses that command me to do things, I'm not reading suggestions for my consideration. I'm reading commands from my creator. So the first reason we need this blown-up image of the immensity of God is because it deals with our arrogance. It deals with my arrogance. It reminds me that he's God and I'm not. And frankly, I think the world would be a lot better place if a lot more people realized that. Can somebody say amen? There's a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of harm that, that, that are doing it because they think they're a lot bigger than they are. What they need to see is what Moses saw here. So it saves us from, from arrogance on the one hand, but the other side of this, as much as we hate that first part, we need it. It leads to liberation because in delivering us from arrogance, it also delivers us from anxiety because it reminds us, oh, wait a minute. So the, way to, the fate of the universe and the weight of my life is no longer on me. And you, and you see how badly Moses needed this. I mean, you look at all that this calling would cost Moses, all the discouragement, all the uprisings, all the, you know, the, the weight of the people and the criticism and the rejection. And there's one point in Numbers 11, Moses just wants to die, this calling so heavy. He struggles so often with what I think most people struggle with, if they're being honest, which how can, it, it's just this question, how can I continue to serve you? How can I do what it is you've called me to do? You see this in just the next chapter where Moses says, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or since you've been speaking to your servant because I'm slow and hesitant in speech. I love the way God answers him. It says, Yahweh said to him, who made the human mouth? I love that God doesn't say, no, you're a great public speaker, Moses. He just gets the focus off of Moses entirely. He says, Moses, I designed speech I designed that tongue that you think doesn't work the way that you should. I'll take care of this. And so my point is, as much as the human heart might resist the immensity of God because we want to remain in control of our lives, when we, when we let go of that, there's freedom and there's liberation because now we can rest knowing that the, the fate of the universe and the weight of my life does not depend on my gifts, my callings, my abilities, my wisdom, my anything. It rests on the shoulders of the one who called me. When we accept that, there is a rest available to us that we will find nowhere else in existence. So thirdly, Moses saw the immensity of God. You and I, if we're going to walk in the calling that God, if we're going to do anything that God calls us to do, we need over and over and over again 
to be amazed by the immensity of the God that calls us. Fourthly, this will be the last thing. I want to draw your attention to the provision of God. Obviously, it's, it's, it's great to talk about, you know, God is the self-sustaining fire and he's the great I am and he's the perpetually existing one, but, but it, it certainly does raise the question, well, how could God use somebody like Moses? How, how could God use, how could a God of this magnitude use any of us kind of, you know, half-hearted, frail, self-centered, sinful creatures? You know, the, the, the question here is not, why wasn't that bush consumed? The question is, why wasn't Moses? And the answer to that question is found in verse 2. It says, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within the bush. What's really interesting, I don't know if you caught this when we read through it, but on the front end we're told the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. All through the rest of that passage we're told that it was the Lord himself. Which raises the question, so who was it exactly that Moses was, was dealing with that day? Was it the angel of the Lord or was it the Lord himself? And I, I'm sorry because I feel like I do this to you all the time, but the answer, biblically speaking, is yes. Uh, you, you've maybe heard me um, walk through this before, but if you survey the Old Testament, you'll find angels are brought up a number of times. Sometimes they have names, sometimes just characterization um, or classification like cherubim and seraphim. But every once in a while, it, it's really not, not a whole lot more than a dozen times, there's this very mysterious figure that we really wouldn't know who it is if not for the complete Scripture, you know, the New Testament. It's this figure uh, called the angel of the Lord. He's not an angel of the Lord. He's the angel of the Lord. He always shows up in the midst of some kind of crisis. He always resolves some kind of problem. And he is always portrayed deliberately as a paradox because it'll say every single time, quote me on this, every single time the angel of the Lord shows up, it'll say on the one hand that the angel of the Lord said and did these things. You keep reading through the story and it'll say that it's God himself that said and did those things. And so this, this character, this figure is deliberately portrayed as both equal with God and yet separate from God. Can I ask you, can you think of anybody else in scripture that falls into that category? Someone who is over and over again uh, described as equal with God and yet distinct from God at the same time. Alec Modier, an Irish biblical scholar, had this to say about the angel of the Lord. <clears throat> he said, there's only one other person in the Bible who's both identical with yet distinct from the Lord. One who, without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of deity or diminishing the divine holiness, is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners and who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet a supreme display of his outreaching mercy. Here it is. The angel of the Lord cannot be understood except as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. The figure that Moses was dealing with in that day, although I, I can't believe that he really understood it, was Jesus Christ before he was born into this world as a baby. Uh, and if you think I'm, I'm kind of stretching that or pressing that, this is exactly why in John's Gospel account, chapter 8, Jesus Christ says, before Abraham was, I am. That's a deliberate nod to this story. It's Jesus in no uncertain terms claiming to be divine. So maybe you're asking the question, well, that's fascinating, but how is it that, that Jesus, the angel of the Lord, how does he resolve this tension of how Moses, or anybody for that matter, could enter into the presence of God and be used powerfully by God without being completely undone by that God's holiness. And, and the answer is this thing that we make a pretty big deal about around here that we refer to as the gospel. Because centuries after this account in Exodus chapter 3, we're told that the angel of the Lord was born into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And at the end of Jesus' life, 
As he hung on the cross, Jesus experienced for Moses what Moses should have experienced in the presence of God that day. He experienced for you and I what we should all experience in the presence of God. Because as Jesus hung on the cross for the sins of the world, he experienced what it was to have the fire of God's wrath descending on him and literally consuming him. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, something has become available to us that not only do I not believe Moses could wrap his head around it, but I don't even think the, the 11 disciples who remained with Jesus after the crucifixion actually understood exactly what Jesus makes available to us because it doesn't exactly become clear until you get to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. I don't know if you've ever thought about that account before, but on the day of Pentecost, which is sometimes referred to as the birthday of the church, I'm almost done, so just hang on with me here. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit descended, and, and really that's when the church as we know it now was born. In that moment, Scripture tells us uh, something happened that is a, del- it's a deliberate nod to Exodus chapter 3. We're told that something like tongues of fire descended and, and, and these tongues of fire rested on the heads, not just of the apostles, not just of the church leaders, but of every single believer there. That's a deliberate nod to what we just talked about this morning in Exodus chapter 3. And here's what that means. It means that in Jesus, you don't just get to approach the presence of God. What Acts chapter 2 is showing us is that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the presence of God approaches you. The presence of God rests on you, it enters into your life, and it transforms you in a way to allow you to become someone you could never otherwise be and live a life that you could never otherwise live. In other words, in other words, this is something that I don't think Moses would have dared to even think of. The promise that we have through Jesus is not just that we each get our own personal burning bush experience, it's that you become a burning bush. It means that same light, that same power, that same beauty, that same glory that so captivated Moses and drew him in and, and, and so profoundly altered his life, that same power and presence enters into your life. It changes your life and it enables you, just as it did for Moses, it enables you to become an agent of change in the lives of the people that God places in your life. To not understand that is to fail to recognize all that the Lord Jesus Christ has made available to you through his life, death, and resurrection. Final thoughts here. I don't know if you caught this, but before Moses Um, before God reveals himself as the I am to Moses, this is going to mean more to you, especially if you you were here with us last week. He calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I don't think any of us at first recognizes exactly um, how amazing of a statement that is. Because when you dig into the life of Moses, what you'll find is, is Scripture does not whitewash anybody's lives. Scripture is not shy about the fact that in his worst moments, Abraham was an ineffectual coward. He was willing to send away his his maidservant Hagar and his biological son Ishmael. He was ready to watch them die of simply being exposed to the elements, starvation, thirst, whatever it is. Not only that, uh, but there were numerous times in Abraham's life when he was so cowardly, he lied about his wife Sarah and said that she was his sister rather than his wife, allowed her to go into the arms of another man simply so he could save his own skin. How he ever looked at his wife in the eye ever again after that, I'll never know. But God says here, I'm willing to be called Abraham's God. 
uh, he says that he's the God of Isaac. Isaac, we talked about last week, Scripture, again, does not come at, the, at it sideways, that, that Isaac uh, absolutely destroyed his own family with the favoritism that he showed Esau. He, he, he was a terrible father. He's not a model father. Nobody's looking at Isaac and saying that's what a father after God's own heart should look like. God says here, Moses, I'm willing to be called Isaac's God. And not only that, probably the worst, worst one of the trio, God says, I'm, I'm the God of Jacob. If you were here last week, we spent 45 minutes just talking about how banged up of a guy Jacob was. He's a deceitful, manipulative, conniving snake of a man. There's not a person in Jacob's life who's better off for his presence in their life before God uh, comes to him. And, and to a large degree, even afterwards, Jacob is a guy that is wounded and wounds other people. And yet God says, I'm willing to be called the God, even of people like that. And what God is saying there, that's not just ancestry. That's not just genealogy. God's making a statement about who he is and the kinds of people that he's willing to work through. What God is saying to Moses there, and what Scripture is saying to all of us, is that God is willing to be called the God of people who have ruined their own lives. He's saying, I'm, he's saying, I'm the kind of God, I'm not just willing, but I actually delight to work with unpromising material. The only thing that's required is that you, you admit exactly how much you need me to work in your life. And in this story, in Exodus chapter 3, what God would say to every one of us, he's saying, look at what I was able to do with somebody like Moses. Look at what I was able to do with a man whose life looked like it was already over. I interrupted it, I filled it with purpose, and I accomplished things through him that he would have never otherwise been capable of on his own. And so what this passage ultimately does is it invites you and it invites me to consider to imagine what God could do through people like us. Understand his timing. Experience his reality. See his immensity and trust his provision by grace through faith in the name of Jesus There's no telling, there is absolutely no telling what he can do through you.